just give yourself grace and uh, don't feel like you've got to catch all the way up from the last two months of reading. Just jump in with where we are now and uh, read the scripture together. And we're doing this as a whole church wide. And so we would love for you to join in together with us. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful on this morning uh, that we could uh, worship you. I wonder what you think from your perspective. If you look down on us and you see a group of people on the east side of Greenville who are willing to give their lives for you, to follow you, to work out your kingdom, to uh, distribute healing and grace to our neighbors in need, as it was read, to think about the things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, to think on those things. And to honor your Son, who the Spirit of the Lord rests upon, who doesn't judge by what he sees or dispute by what he hears, but instead he gives us a new kingdom to live in, a kingdom that's not of this world. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, be with us this hour. As we've already said, speak to us. We all have different needs in this room. We all have different desires, different things that have happened in our lives this week. Some of us need to be convicted. Some of us need to be encouraged. Some need to know that you're sovereign. Some of us are grieving over a situation, but wherever we are, Father, we pray that we can bring these things to you now, even as, Holy Spirit, you prompt us during the preaching. May we actually pray, and may we actually uh, work these things out in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, oceans rise, empires fall, and uh, we've seen each other through it all. But when push comes to shove, I'll send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. So says King George in Hamilton. Uh, He's probably my favorite character, King George is. I just love him. And I love that he thinks that everything is completely secure. But what he says in that line is, look, oceans rise. Oceans are going to rise and empires are going to fall. The things that look so certain in life often aren't certain at all. And when we get to this text, as we're reading through Scripture, we get to 1 Kings chapter 12, things had looked so certain up to this point. Let me give you just a little bit of history. Uh, People were exiled into Egypt. You know that part. They come back. David unites the kingdom. And when he unites the kingdom, he brings all of the 12 tribes together. And he unites them. He defeats all of the people that are against them. He establishes worship in Jerusalem. And then he can't build the temple. He turns it over to his son, Solomon. His first son from Bathsheba had died. You remember that story. And so Solomon, filled with wisdom, also loves women, uh, has a lot of riches, taxes the people heavily, builds the temple, and then after that kind of loses his way. And so in 1 Kings chapter 11, God says, I'm going to have to rip this kingdom from you because you have turned away from me. And so in 1 Kings chapter 12, what we get theologically, what we call, is the divided kingdom. You go from the united kingdom under David and Solomon to the divided kingdom. Now the kingdom is going to be divided. Rehoboam will be in the south with two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. But he gets Jerusalem. He gets the prime land. 
And then a guy named Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who's not related but had served and had worked in Solomon's kingdom, he'll get the north, and he'll get ten tribes, and he'll get the north. And those two kingdoms will be at war with each other continually for all of their um, problems and all of their kings for the rest of the time. Now, here's the deal. They're at war with each other, but then when somebody fights them, they try to help each other. But they can't always have a united front. So the northern kingdom will last until 722 uh, B.C. when Assyria will come in and capture the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom will last. That would be Rehoboam, and that would be Judah, and that would be Benjamin and Jerusalem. They'll last until 586 when Babylonians will come in and will finally capture them. And then that's where you get the stories of Daniel going away and all the people going away in exile. That's where you get almost all of the minor prophets that we're going to read. And then after that, in about 439, when Cyrus comes in and starts ruling and Persians take over all of that rule, they kind of come back in, and that's where you get Ezra, that's where you get Nehemiah, that's where you get the prophets who are coming back and trying to reestablish uh, the Jerusalem worship. So that's where we are. Now, why would this be in the text? Why would God even put this in here? You know what it does? This shows you your longing, and it shows you and me our longing for the security of an everlasting king. That's the first point. We have a longing for the security of an everlasting king. See, we always think that things are going to somehow last in life, and they never do. In the 70s, we just thought that Pittsburgh was going to win every Super Bowl. <laughs> and you just think the Warriors are going to win the NBA championship every year, and it just doesn't last. Or you think Alabama or Clemson is going to be dominant, and it just doesn't last. Or maybe even worse than that, you see a marriage. And the marriage somewhere falls apart, and you thought, not them. I was sure if I was betting, I would have never bet that that couple would get divorced, that that guy would have an affair. I would have never bet that that guy would have gotten fired from his job. How did that happen? Or that that girl got cancer, or that that kid walked away. I would have never bet that America would one day fail, or Rome and there's a period of time where it looked like the Third Reich was going to establish their kingdom forever, or the Ottomans, or pick your empire. Oceans rise and empires fall. Pick whatever looks secure to you, and it probably isn't. We live on this uh, spinning earth. You know, you're traveling right now, according to NASA, at 1,037 miles an hour. That's how fast the earth is spinning. And whether you know it or not, I think we all have a deep desire for something that's secure, something that we can hold on to. And the longer you live, you realize it's not my looks, it's not my health, it's not my popularity. It's not my money. All of those things just kind of fade. It's all transitory, as Ecclesiastes would tell us. And so there is in your heart, whether you're a Christian or not, and in my heart, the longing for something that we can hold on to that would bring us some kind of security, some kind of peace. And as we see these kingdoms start to fall apart, it's the longing for an everlasting king, which is actually incredibly offensive. In John chapter 8, uh, Jesus comes into uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees, that area, and he's talking with them. And, and he says to them, you're actually the father of the devil. 
You're, you're actually following your father, the devil. You're actually a slave to sin. And I'm actually the king in the line of what you've been longing for ever since Abraham. And they said, how could you know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old yet. There's no way. And remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. I'm the secure king that you've been longing for this whole time. I'm the one who knows the plot line and the trajectory of this world. Before Abraham, I was, I am. And you remember how they reacted? They picked up stones to stone him. What what would it take? What would Jesus have to say for you to want to kill him? For, For them, it was blasphemy. It was heresy to say, I'm outside of this world. I'm above and outside of time. Everything was made through and for and by me. Before Abraham was, I am. And you're looking at him as this 30-year-old Jewish guy with a beard, not much to look at, saying, really, you? You're the one who was to come? You're the one who was prophesied about? We thought you'd be taller, We thought you'd be bigger. We thought you'd be something other than what you are. But Jesus' claims are true. We long for the security of an everlasting king. But we often, here's the second point, follow the folly of following man. And so let me read this text. First, we're going to look at Rehoboam. Then we're going to look at Jeroboam. Rehoboam chapter uh, 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. That's important. We'll come back to that. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent him, and they called him Jeroboam. And all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father, that would be Solomon, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore... Lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days and then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if... You will be a servant to these people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them. Then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him. And he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people you have said to me, lighten the yoke that the Father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, come to me again that third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel of the old men that he had given to them, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. 
My father disciplines you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill the word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah in Shalonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. There we have Rehoboam. And what do we take away from here? I mean, you could look at this and say, okay, this is clearly not going to go well if Rehoboam is saying, I am going to double down on what Solomon did. I'm going to prove myself even more. I'm going to bring you under submission. I'm going to make sure that you serve me. I'm not here to serve you as a king, like our King Jesus. No, I want you to serve me, and I'm going to keep you oppressed. There's several things we learn. Like, for example, beyond just Rehoboam, think about your own hearts. When is it that you uh, take advice from somebody and somebody gives you advice, like the old men, the elders of this passage, and because it doesn't fit your narrative, because it's not what you want to hear, you discount it and you go find somebody else who will tell you what you want to hear. How often do you do that in your life? How often in your life do you see people as a means to the end? Rehoboam saw people as a means to the end. These people are here to serve me. They're here to make me great. How often when you just um, interact with a waiter or a waitress, when you just find somebody at the store where you're buying clothes or do something, how often do you see them as just a means to an end? They're not an eternal creature. They're not made for the glory of God. They're just somebody who's supposed to give you something that you need. They're there to serve you. How often do you get defensive, like Rehoboam got defensive, uh, when they came to him after those days and asked him another time, and he said, look, I'm going to double down. How often in your life when somebody says, hey, you know, you really should think about, you say something like, you have no idea. I'm going to double down. I'm going to immediately get defensive. I'm immediately not going to be open or vulnerable to what you might be telling me or what your heart might be longing for. We're probably more like Rehoboam than we want to admit. And what did Rehoboam want? He wanted power. He wanted control. He, he didn't want to have to serve somebody else that lets go of control. He wanted that power where everybody would serve him. And then you have Jeroboam. Look at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Where did he learn to make these golden calves? Remember when he fled to Egypt? And those years in Egypt when he was there, probably the Egyptians said, oh, we remember your people. And we uh, kicked y'all out, and y'all fled back to your little homeland back in Israel. But you always had these golden calves that you worshipped. And so somewhere along the way, he learned that when he was in Egypt, and he brought that back, attributing God's work to these golden calves. In verse 29, he says, And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. 
Then this thing became a sin for the people. Went as far as Dan to be before one. And he made temples on high places, and he appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. He's just making it up. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Here we have Jeroboam. Unlike Rehoboam, who wanted power, what did Jeroboam want? He wanted relevance. He wanted to be popular. He wanted people to come after him. And he realized, the only way I can make this happen is to get the worship out of the temple of Jerusalem and establish another place where people can worship in a different pattern of worship. And I'm going to make up these feasts. I'm going to make up these festivals. And then people will feel obligated to Dan. And they'll feel obligated to Bethel. And they'll come to these places. Because if they go to Jerusalem, they're going to see Rehoboam. They're going to see the tall colonnades. They're going to see that city. And they'll fall back in love with it. So I've got to keep them away from Jerusalem and get them to Bethel. And I've got to get them to Dan because I want relevance. I want my kingdom to survive. There's actually, if you go to Israel, you can actually go to Tel Dan. And I think we have a picture of it if we can put it up. I don't normally show pictures like this. But here we are. This is in Dan. And if you look on the left, you'll see a little uh, structure, a metal structure. That's where the altar was. That's the actual altar. Don't forget that this is historical. Like you can actually go to Jeroboam's place where he actually built a temple in Dan and see these are the works of Jeroboam's hands, like literally. And that little part, that little square metal part, that would have been where the altar was. And then if you look past this tree, you go up those steps, and we'll go to the next slide, up on those steps. That right there is where they had a big, huge golden calf. And so they would sacrifice down on the bottom part to this golden calf, which is up there on that top platform, and it still exists today. And the interesting thing about it is this. It's placed so its back is facing Jerusalem. We are turning away from God. We're turning away from what you've told us to do. Like ostentatiously so. We're going to structure this whole thing so Jerusalem's back there because we're going to turn away and we're going to worship these golden calves because I want relevance. Now why would this be in the Bible at all? Again, two things that we see which are two major temptations. The first one is this. Rehoboam valued power. And let's be honest, most Southern evangelical Christians value power. We want to be in control politically. We want to be in control culturally. We want people to serve us rather than to serve others. And the gospel does give power, but it gives power to repent. And it gives power to love. And it gives power to forgive. It gives that kind of power. You will always be promised to be the majority of the culture that you live in. This is a very, very unique time in Christian history. 
and you're not the majority anymore. And most of us don't exactly know how to cope with that. We cope with it by trying to get it back because we love power and we love control. And maybe you think, I'm not that controlling. But maybe your controlling looks a different way. Maybe you're controlling because you live a life that's so safe you never have to risk anything. You never put yourself in a place where you might have to trust by faith or you might have to work out repentance or you might have to ask somebody forgiveness or you might get your hands dirty. Maybe you're controlling that way. But most of us in this room love power and we love control and we value that like Rehoboam. If it's not that, most of us will value relevance. We want to be popular. And, and so when something with Christianity is not popular, we, we downplay it or we diminish it a little bit because we want to be liked and we want to be accepted. But you know what Christianity gives you? It gives you relevance in being peculiar. <laughs> that we're, as it says in Peter, we're called to be the peculiar people that the world looks at us and say, y- y'all are so odd. You're so weird. You keep forgiving people. You keep loving people. You're spending so much time or money with switch and trying to rescue people from sex trafficking. Don't you know that's just going to happen? It's always happened. You're never going to stop that. Why are you spending so much time and energy on that? You spend time going overseas to share the gospel with people in Greece. You spend time with the Cherokees in North Carolina. You spend time loving your neighbor and giving meals to people in need. You're so peculiar. Nobody else works that way. We want relevance, and the gospel gives us relevance, but it It's in being peculiar, being different from the world. And all of us, as we said earlier, want the security of an everlasting king. There's one more reason why this is in the Bible, this passage. Because David, if you remember, all the way back in 1 Kings uh, 6 through 7, David asked that he would build the temple. And God said, I... I'm not really in the business of just going along with what you think would be good. No, you're not going to build the temple. Uh, I'm going to have Solomon build the temple. But David, I will give you from your line, I will give you an everlasting king instead. From your line will come the king who will heal the nations. From your line, one of your descendants will be one of the kings that will bring everybody together again. And as you read through Isaiah 11, as you read through Isaiah 40, as you read through the prophets talking about this king who they're going to call the Messiah, it talks about him in all of these beautiful ways where lion and lamb will lay down together, this imaginatory world where all of these sores will be beaten into plowshares, where he will discern not by what he sees and judge not by what he sees but his heart, where the spirit will descend upon him and he will rule and he will reign and there will be a new established kingdom, and that will come from your line, David. And so when Rehoboam was born, everybody's like, is that going to be him? Nope, not him. And then Asa, after him, is it going to be Asa? Nope, not Asa, even though Asa did some good stuff. Not Asa. And then each king, all the people waiting and wondering, well, this king, is, he's going to come from David. The lion, the root of the tribe of Judah, it's going to come from David. Where will it be? Who will it be? So when blind Bartimaeus says in the New Testament, when he does not see Jesus but hears him, son of David, have mercy on me. 
That's the tip of the hat. You're the son of David. You're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the one who has been promised to come. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't Rehoboam. Every king from here on out that we read in Kings will be leading you to the ultimate king. And the last point, the reality of a new kingdom. And so we get this uh, in the New Testament. I love, uh, as you know, Fedor Dostoevsky. And uh, he wrote uh, four major books. He wrote more than that. But uh, Brothers Karamazov, The Idiot, Crime and Punishment, and The Possessed are his four major works uh, that you need to read. Uh, and, and The Possessed, which actually in Russian means demons. It's a political satire. I'm just going to tell you what it's about so you don't have to read it. It's a, it's a political satire uh, about people giving up on uh, politics, and therefore this guy comes into this town and by the work of spiritual demonic forces takes over and suppresses the people written in the 1860s because people were getting disillusioned with uh, Russian politics at that point. But in Dostoevsky, he says, in uh, The Possessed, he says this, the one essential condition of human existence is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. That's why you need more than just a good president or a good congressman or a good congresswoman or a good pastor, or a good boss, or a good employee. You need something infinitely great. If men are deprived of the infinitely great, they will not go on living and die of despair. The infant and the eternal are essential for man as the little planet on which he dwells. Your heart was made for the kingdom of Christ. Your heart was made for that. Your heart is made for something infinitely great. Yesterday morning, I don't know why they do this on Saturday. I guess it's because they know you're going to be there. Uh, you know, the person shows up, AT&T person, to try to upgrade you on all of your stuff. And I always have to answer that. All of my kids and my wife go into hiding. They're like cockroaches. They just immediately hide when somebody knocks on the door. I'm like, okay, I'll go do it. We we're thankfully AT&T customers, so we didn't have to uh, do anything. I'm like, I already buy all your stuff, so don't worry about it, you know. So they were walking through the whole process, and I, uh, she said, you look tired. I said, well, it's Saturday. Yes, I am. I just flew in. I was gone all week. She said, oh, work or pleasure? I said, that work? Uh, I was at General Assembly all week long, and she said, well, what do you do? And I have, as you know, I have three or four responses depending on the situation. So I looked at her. I thought, ah, I'll go with option B. Uh, so I said, I, I will tell you what I do if you promise you won't judge me. And she said, okay. And I said, I'm a conservative Presbyterian pastor. You have to add in conservative there at that moment. Because I mean, that places you. Now they know I'm a conservative Presbyterian pastor. And she goes, oh. And you can see, I'm judging you. You told me not to judge you. Now I'm stuck. And you can see the whole process happening in her little brain, you know, not knowing what to say. And almost everybody will say something like this. Oh, I've always wanted something that's fulfilling or has meaning in life. Almost everybody says that. And she says, well, where were you going? I said, well, I get together with, once a year, we get together with most of the pastors in the denomination, and we pray, and we talk, and I meet with a lot of friends and hear what God's doing around the world, and we encourage each other, and we vote on things, and we try to live for something other than ourselves. You know what she said? She said, oh, my word, 
I just got goosebumps. Just me telling her about, I've never got goosebumps from General Assembly. I don't know what she thinks happens there, but it's not, it's not that thrilling. I said, maybe it's that cross around your neck. She's wearing a cross. She probably has no idea what it means. But you know what she wants? Well, you know why she got goosebumps? Because she wants to live before something infinitely great. And she's walking down the street just getting rejection letters on the Saturday morning. And she, her heart probably longs. Maybe I could be a part of some kind of kingdom that matters. Maybe my life could have some kind of purpose. And in the New Testament, we have this reality of the new kingdom where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things then will be added to you. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. All of these beautiful pictures in the parables of the kingdom. And then in John 18, remember what Jesus says? My kingdom is actually not of this world. It's in this world, but it's not of this world. And we as Christians learn to love, not the power, not the relevance, but we learn to love the kingdom of Christ that's not of this world. I've got a daughter, as you know, that went to Samford. She's a rising sophomore. And I have another daughter, uh, much to my chagrin, who is uh, not for her existence, uh, (laughs) who is um, going to Alabama. Let let the groan be noted for the record. Uh, I hate Alabama. I've never, I've never liked that school. Some of you are like sending me clothes and stuff, and that's fine. You keep sending to me. But you know what's going to happen? I'm going to go to the Alabama-Auburn game this fall, apparently, and I'm going to put on an Alabama shirt, apparently, and I'm going to root for Alabama. You know why? Because my daughter loves, for whatever reason, Alabama. And so I love Alabama. And I will grow in my sanctification of learning to love Alabama. When you become a Christian, you put on the cloak of Christ, his righteousness, and you learn to love poor people because Jesus loves poor people. And you learn to love forgiveness because Jesus loves forgiveness. And you learn to love mercy because Jesus loves mercy. And you learn to love generosity because Jesus loves generosity. And you learn to love the world. And you're gonna grow into it But that's the reality of a new kingdom. Very quickly, it's two things. It's a kingdom of healing, and it's a kingdom filled with kids. Just two quotes, two stories were done. Let me read, first of all, from Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went through the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Did you hear that? The kingdom established by Jesus is I'm going to go into that world and I'm going to heal it. Every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. 
And then he called the disciples in Matthew 10, and this is what he told them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles who enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go out to the people that aren't churched. Don't just hang out with your church people all the time. You can control that environment. That's safe. Go to the lost sheep. Go to the people in your neighborhood, in your business, who have never gone to a church. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And heal the sick, and raise the dead, and cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. You have received without paying. You give without pay. That's you. We're the disciples. We're the harvesters. We're the ones that establish this kingdom, and it's a kingdom of healing. So let me just ask you quickly, because you need to do some internal work probably, where are your wounds right now? Where do you need to be healed? Where are you feeling pain emotionally, spiritually, maybe even physically? Where do you feel like you've been wounded by this world? And could you ask Jesus to help you with that wound? Let me go a little further. Where's somebody you know in your circle around you, maybe it's a Christian, maybe not a Christian, who's deeply wounded and in pain, and how can you bring them healing? How can you start to establish the kingdom on earth? Thy kingdom come as it is in heaven. Come here. We're going to have ultimate healing in heaven. Every tear wiped away. How can you make that happen now for your friends? How can we live the reality of this kingdom, of our everlasting king, How can we live it out now? Uh, A friend of this church, he used to go here, Greg and Trisha Bainey, who uh, is a pastor, and I got to catch up with him. I just love Greg. Um, He's working now with Native Americans, Indians in Chattanooga. And he's Indian. You would never know it uh, by looking at him, but he is. His dad was referred to by people in his culture as the drunk Indian. And he finally met his dad and realized, oh, he is Indian, and he is drunk. And so he's dealing with that wound and unpacking that, and he's now working with the Indians trying to establish a church in that area. And you know what he found? He went to First Pres, and in First Pres, Chattanooga, they had locked up in a case the communion set that they used to give communion to the Cherokee Indians right before they left from Blythe Ferry to go on the Trail of Tears. With that, with forced out, I don't know if you know that story or not, but Blythe Ferry is where the Trail of Tears started, where they were forced out, thousands of them, to Oklahoma. Many of them died on the way. It was a genocide. Let's not clean it up. And you know what Greg said to the pastors at First Pres? When I have a church, and he's working to establish a church right now, he's got about 20, he's getting there. When I have a church and we have our first communion, can I use that communion set? And they said, by all means. So somewhere in the future, a group of Native American Indians in Chattanooga are going to have communion from that same communion set because the kingdom is a kingdom of healing. And that's what we're called to do. Lastly, it's a kingdom of kids. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him on the midst of him, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of kids, and kids 
Learn how to imagine. I know I can't speak for uh, maybe everybody, and this is not, um, I'm not speaking on behalf of the session, although I think I'm on pretty safe territory here, uh, but super thrilled by the Dobbs decision. But it's not something that we gloat over because the pain of 50 million aborted babies over, that's a, probably a small estimate over the last 50 years is uh, still a major wound of this culture and our nation that we say is Christian. And it, it doesn't mean we gloat, but it does mean we recognize that all of life is precious, whether you're old or whether you have Down syndrome or whether you have some physical disability or whether you're unborn. But there is something special in the kingdom of God about kids, isn't there? Their imagination, the way they view the world. Last story, and then we're uh, going away. I need to go to General Assembly more because I get so many stories from my pastor friends. One well, once a year is good. Um, good friend of mine, Jake Patton, he uh, has a church in Salina, Texas. And uh, this girl from Ukraine, she became a Christian. And then she married this uh, uh, black Haitian guy. And he became a Christian. And that's what, that's what America looks like, in case you don't know. In Salina, Texas, there's a Ukrainian, pale, Eastern European woman married to this Haitian guy, and they're both Christians worshiping, and they have a son. And their son, when the Ukraine war broke out, their son had a vision and a dream because he's a kid, and he hasn't forgotten that you can imagine and you can dream when you're a kid. And he had the dream that his uncle, who was in Ukraine, would worship with them on Easter. They were on the eastern part of Ukraine. The war broke out, as you know, February 20th, 24th, depending on what historic uh, document you look at. But either way, between the late February, the war broke out, as you know, in Ukraine, and they tried to flee from the east. They got to the western border. They had... uh, they said, no, you're, you're not allowed. The uncle, you're not allowed to go with him. You have to stay here and fight. And then they said, how many kids you Oh, you have three kids? Okay, you can go. Apparently, that's the limit. If you have three kids, you could get out. If you had two kids, the guys had to stay. Somehow, they made it to Spain. And then from Spain, they went through seven other countries until somehow they made it to Mexico. And then they crossed legally from Mexico into Texas because they knew that's where her, his sister lived in Texas and they made it to Texas and landed on Monday, Thursday and worshiped on Easter Sunday just like that little kid had predicted. Friends, I wonder if we could imagine again. I wonder if we could be kids again in the kingdom and imagine again what God might do in this world because he's transferred us. As it says in, first, in Colossians 1, He's transferred us into a kingdom of light where there is forgiveness of sins. And imagine that all of your sins are forgiven. And you live now in this new kingdom. Let's enjoy it. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now you'd be with us, encourage us, Help your kingdom to be established through this little tribe on the east side of Greenville. Help your kingdom to be established. A kingdom of humility, a kingdom of love, a kingdom filled with kids, children of the heavenly Father. We pray in your name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing this.